Thanks, Benjer. Good morning. Uh, I'm glad you could all join us here on Labor Day weekend. I know that, that uh, you probably all have big plans after this because it's a holiday weekend. And so the fact that you would take time out of your busy weekend to come and, and, and study the Word with us means a lot. Uh, my name is Jake Noyes. I'm the director of small groups here at Flourishing Grace Church. Um, and like I said, since it's a holiday weekend, this is a weekend that a lot of people like to travel, right? In fact, for my family, we're, we're, we're going to pack up and head out after here and, and head on vacation for a few days. And, and four years ago, we were doing that same thing. We were up in Bear Lake, and we, went, we were hanging out with, with Bree's brothers. And if you've gone to Bear Lake, there's a bunch of cabins, and, and I'm not much of a camper, specifically if you have to use like a tent. I'm definitely out. But if, if I can go and I can be in a cabin and have a shower, uh, I might be up for it. So because we go up to Bear Lake, and because we're going camping, and because I know nothing about camping, I thought, I'll take my dog. That sounds like fun. Now, Elway is like my kindred spirit, right? He is, if you were to take, my, take me and put me in the form of a dog, it would be Elway. And if Elway stood up and could talk, he would be just like me, kind of loud and obnoxious and fast-paced, right? And so we take him up. He's cooped up in the cabin all day because when you go to Bear Lake, you go to the lake where you can't take your dogs. Brilliant, I know. So we get, we get back to our campsite, and each morning what we would do is we would throw the tennis ball for Elway to just try and help him burn off some energy before we cooped him back up. So we're sitting around the fire, and Bree is throwing this, this brand new tennis ball we brought up. But all of you who have dogs, or any of you who have ever thrown a tennis ball after a dog's had it in its mouth, know that it gets like this really slimy, white, gross saliva mess all over the ball, right? So it's just this like oozing, disgusting orb. And Bree's tossing it into the dirt. And so, of course, when the dog brings it back, it's gray and gross and disgusting. So she throws the ball, and she throws the ball, and she throws the ball. And on the way back one time, her brother-in-law sits right in the line of fire. Now, her brother-in-law is a germaphobe. <laughs> doesn't, like, doesn't like any of it, right? And so she cocks back, and, and you have that moment, right? We've all had that moment when you're like, oh, this is going to end bad. And I'm sitting next to her, and I see, based on the way her arm is, the, based on the way she's launching the ball and it's coming out, I'm like... This isn't, this isn't going to end well. And she releases that ball, and it all happens in slow motion. The ball comes slowly moving at his face and splat on his cheek. And you just see the disgusting slobber and saliva everywhere. It was, it was actually one of the best days of my life. But for, for him, he was just mortified. And if you've ever met Bree, like, Bree is the sweetest person. She would never intentionally spike a ball off someone's face. She just wouldn't. But... If she had, had she taken that disgusting, slobbery tennis ball and thrown it as hard as she could at her brother's face and hit him, it would totally change the outcome and how we would have reacted, right? When she threw it the first time, we all started laughing hysterically, including him through his dry heaves. And then, but if he, she had done it on purpose, right, he probably would have been really upset. The intent matters. It's the same reason that if I'm driving my car and I rear-end someone, that if I, you know, we get in an accident, it's called an accident, and insurance pays for it. But if I'm driving down the side of the road, and I see a pedestrian, and I swerve, and I hit him on purpose, it's called murder, right? Intent matters. Even when it comes to small things, like we all have that one friend who's really, really good at gift giving, right? They always know just what to give you, or, or just when to call and say, hey, can I just take you out to, to buy you lunch, and so we can talk, Right? 
The intent of what that person does matters. It feels good. It feels like they, they have our best interest at heart. But we also have that friend that gives you a gift card no matter what event it is, and they bought it on the way to see you. It's not to say that it wasn't a nice gift, but the intent wasn't the same. Or, or when they take you to lunch, there's always an ulterior motive, like, hey, can I borrow your trailer? I'm taking you to lunch so that I can get this thing from you, right? We all have friends like that. The intent behind what we do matters. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about is that uh, what, what I mean by what we, intent matters is that what we do is not as important as the reasons to why we do it. So we're going to be in John chapter 13 today, but before we dive into the text, I want to kind of set the stage. So, so we just did communion, and this actually, as we talk about communion, this is the events leading up to when Christ gave the direction on the last, uh, or on communion. This is the Passover feast with his disciples. And so what's going on is Jesus has, they've gathered, they've sat down to eat, share a meal, and Jesus takes a basin of water, fills it, and begins walking around and washing the disciples' feet. And as he's doing it, it says in verse 6 that Peter says, Lord, what are you doing? Like, you're, you're our master. I should be washing your feet. But Christ responds to him and says, Peter, if I do not wash you, you cannot be with me. And so like any of us, I think uh, Peter says, well, if that's the case, Jesus, like, I need you to wash all of me. I need you to wash my face and my hands and my hair. And, and Jesus says, Peter, that's not the point. The point is, is that you should serve others, that you should do as I do. And at that point, Jesus sits back down and he looks around the table. And in those days, the table would have been really low to the ground and there would be cushions all around. And he sat down and he says to the group of disciples, these men who have been with him for months, and says, one of you will betray me. So you can imagine in that, in that moment, if you were sitting in a group of friends and one of them said, hey, one of you, you, one of you is going to turn your back on me and betray me, you all would kind of start stirring and say, which one? Certainly it's not me. Who is it? Who could it be? So Peter, curious like that, turns to the one whom Jesus loved, who, who most scholars will say was John, was John, the writer of the book, turns to him and says, hey, ask Jesus who it is, right? There's so much commotion going on, he can't, he can't get Jesus' attention, and so he turns to John, and John turns to Christ, and, and Christ says, the person whom I give this morsel of bread to, he is the one who will betray me. And so he dips the bread into the wine and hands it to Judas. And then he commands Judas, and he says, go do what you're going to do. And that's where we're going to pick up today. So if you would, uh, go ahead and pull out your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue one under your seat. We're going to be on page 998 of that Bible. And here at Flourishing Grace Church, we believe that this is the inspired Word of God. And so if you can and if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read John chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 33. Little children... Yet a little while I am standing, I am with you. You, will, see, you s- will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Go ahead and take a seat. All right. So Judas stands up and he leaves the party, right? And, and so now it's just Christ and the, the remaining disciples and Jesus says to him, the time is coming for my crucifixion. Soon God will be glorified through my glory. 
And what he's, what he's alluding to, the fact, is that he's going to be crucified. He's going to die. He says, you cannot come with me to where I'm going. And so then he delivers his last and final commandment, his last and final command. And he doesn't say, hey, if it's convenient for you, or guys, I think it would be a really good idea, or, or hey, if it's, not, if it's not a problem, right? He doesn't say any of those things. It's not good advice. It's not a recommendation. This is a commandment. This is the word of God. This is the last charge I deliver to you before I go off to be crucified, this isn't, like, this isn't like when the small group director asks the worship director to get the bigger table out so that he doesn't have to lean on the little round one, right? <laughs> this isn't like your honey-do list. This isn't like, like when your wife asks you, hey, can you just please put the last five tiles on the backsplash? And you say, yeah, I'll get to it. Six months have passed and that's not done yet, Right? It's not a suggestion. It's not, a, it's not just a soft ask. This is a commandment. And if we look at the entirety of the Gospels, one of the main themes we see when Christ interacts with the religious elite is that they have constantly taken the law, these commandments, these historical commandments laid out in the Old Testament, and perverted them. See, the law specifically said there was this, this piece called the law of retribution, and what the law of retribution that you're probably familiar, familiar with is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And, and what the idea behind that was, was that there would not be punishment that was not suitable for the crime, right? We saw in the Old Testament there were times when someone would commit a crime and the punishment was way too extreme. And it wasn't like now where we had law enforcement, like we didn't have, they didn't have the Bountiful Police Department and the Centerville Police Department, right? They, they, they had to have a way of holding each other accountable and ensuring that people who were being punished weren't being essentially tortured to an extreme degree. But that was not what was going on in the time when Christ was walking it. Uh, walking the earth. What was happening at that point is now we have law enforcement. In, in, in the cities, there were police and there were people that could help enforce rules and laws. And so what had happened is the religious elite had taken those, that law of retribution and they were using it for political gain. They were using it to extract revenge. It was not the intent of what God had laid down in the Old Testament. And God pushed against this idea, or excuse me, Jesus pushed against this idea. In Matthew 5.38, he said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you in the cheek, in the right cheek, turn him to him the other also. So from the very beginning of his ministry, Christ is pushing against this idea of using the law for, for personal gain, Right? In fact, he goes so far as to say people who are using the, re the law of retribution for this reason are evil, right? And so you would turn the other cheek to them because you were going to love that person. You weren't going to use it for your own gain. And so this is a command, it's just like the command in the Old Testament, and it's, and it's a command that he's using in, in retrospect to push against the law of retribution. And his command is really pretty simple. In verse 34, he says, love one another just as I have loved you. You, are also, you also are to love one another. And that seems simple enough, right? It feels like it's a holiday. That's probably a good place to end. But I'm not going to, right? Because, because the reality is, is like many things, the command is really clear. It's really clear. It's really simple. It's incredibly difficult to execute. So if you were here with us last week, you know that we had a golf outing for, for here at Flourishing Grace, uh, Flourishing Grace Church. And 
uh, if I gave you the command and I said, we sat on, we sat on the tee box and I said, hit the ball in the fairway. You can use whatever club that you want. You pick the club, you can do it. You can tee the ball up, which means the ball's not going to be moving. It's going to be absolutely silent. The task is pretty simple. But my guess is that more than half of you would take your first swing and whiff, completely miss, right? The task is simple, but the challenge is hard. There would be another contingent of you that would hit the ball, I don't know, six inches, and there's a larger contingent of you, based on what I saw last week, that would hit the ball 400 or 200 yards out of bounds and to the right, right? Most everybody's going to do that. It's hard to hit the ball in the fairway in golf. Just like this command is a simple command, but it is really challenging to execute. Because loving people is difficult. Because people are the worst, People are hard. People are difficult. How many times have you heard someone say, man, I love so-and-so, but they are such a pain in the butt? Man, I really love Jake, but he is so loud and competitive and obnoxious, right? All of the time, people are so hard to deal with. It's hard to love people, but that's what the command is, and it's hard to execute. And it's hard to execute because of what love is. In 1 Corinthians, Paul defines love for us. He says that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love is patient and kind. That means that it doesn't get frustrated every time, it's, every time its neighbor overwaters their lawn and floods their backyard every day. It does not insist on its own way. It means it doesn't force people into a way of thinking. It doesn't force people to believe that the Denver Broncos are the best team in the NFL, which they are. It bears all things. It endures all things. It's always there, even in the very worst time, it never fails, it lasts, it never ends. Love is the driving force behind the good news. It is the intent of the gospel. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. It's the intent. But that does not describe us. Not all the time, anyway. See, a lot of times what we do is we tend to take mistake an action for love instead of, the, instead of it being a manifestation of love. But the reality is, is that action is really just the fruit of, of, of the love itself. It is not the love. It is not actually the love. It's the intent of the love. It's the outpouring of the love. Before Paul explained what love was, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What Paul says is if I can speak with prophetic powers or in the tongues of angels, 
but I don't have love behind that, I'm nothing more than a loud noise. He says, if I understand all the mysteries of God, if I understand everything that God is thinking, but I have, and I have the faith to tell the mountain to leap, and it leaps, but I do not have love, then I am nothing, Paul says. If I give away all of my possessions, if I take everything in this world and I give it away, if I give my life, if I die as a martyr, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. It's useless. It's not profitable. The command is simple, but the task is hard. Because we must have love for each other, not be loving to each other. We must have love for each other. It's not just about being loving to each other. Christ commands us to love just as he loved. He said, just as I have loved you. See the difference? It's different to have love versus to be loving. The intent matters. So what does that mean? That means the condition of our heart is just as important as the the, the things that we do. It means that What we are doing is done out of love for that person, not because we have to help. It's not a checklist. It's not because we want to gain something from them. It's not because it's the right thing to do, but because we love them. This is the very essence of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for you and for me because of his great love for us. He sacrificed himself for you and for me because he loved us, not because we have anything to offer him. Not because he can gain anything from us, but because he loved us, no strings attached. And in verse 35, he says, by this love, all people will know that you are my disciples. Christ's love is what separates us from the rest of the world. Christ's love radically changes us And it radically changes the way that we love others. And that flies in the face of what Western civilization and our society society has taught us our whole lives. Our society says, it's about me. I'm sure you've all heard something to the effect of, if you love yourself more, if if you want to be happy. How can you expect anyone else to fall in love with you if you're not in love with yourself? Have faith in yourself. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps, and the best thing that you can do is be your own biggest fan. And I'm not saying that self-confidence is bad, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't like yourself, but what I am saying is that loving yourself above all else flies in the face of what Christ taught, because our culture says that you have to serve yourself first and take care of yourself so that you can serve others. The motivation is so that we can get gratification out of serving others. And when we're trying to take care of ourselves first, what we do when we love ourselves first is we say that we're the most important person, we're the most important thing, and we place God secondary to us. It's me first, then you, God. We start to ask questions like, what can God do for me? And when we start to think like this, what that does is we start to want to take control and say, oh, there must be something that I can do. Surely, God, there's something that I can do to earn your favor. It's not simply about grace and grace alone. 
Why wouldn't God want something from me? Look how great I am. And we start to minimize God and maximize ourselves over what he's done for us. And it's not just in our Western society. It happens in our churches. I've heard and read messages from pastors who say that they are trying to lead people into flourishing relationships with Christ, say things like, you have got to get away from the idea that you're guilty and don't measure up to God's standard. God is smiling down on you right now. God is for you. God wants, to, God wants you to be rich. He wants you to go far in life. And it's subtle, and it has truth in there, but it's wrapped in a lie. And when we do that, it tends to take the focus off of God and put the focus back on us. It's not about the creator. It's about the creation. And, it's not, and, and, and when we do that, we are first. And it's statements like this that lead us away from grace and diminish his sacrifice. It's teachings like this that think, say that it's grace plus something. Josh preached on that a few weeks ago. It's grace plus something. It's not. It's grace and grace alone. But that does not mean that the work of Christ stops at salvation. The redemptive work is not where it ends. That's to, to, to swing the pendulum to the other way. We have churches all over the place that don't want to even address the fact that, we, that, there is, that when Christ died for you, when you start a relationship with Jesus, it radically changes who you are and fundamentally you start to behave differently. The reality is, is that if, you're, if you have a relationship and you get married, no one in their right mind would go to their spouse and be like, hey, by the way, I'm going to keep seeing other women. But that's what we do with our relationship with Jesus. We say, yeah, I was saved by grace, but I, my life does not change. I get to do whatever I want because of grace. That's not a full understanding of what Jesus did for you because when Christ died on the cross and gave his life for you, He wanted to transform who you are. And so what happens is we start a relationship with him and we start to turn our attention towards Christ and when he's the Lord of our lives, the more we start to look and act like he does. The more we pour into him, the more he pours out of us. It's just like any other relationship. In every close relationship that you have, on, that you, have you start to take on the attributes of the people that you're around the most. We had a worship pastor here a few years ago named Jeff. And Jeff, uh, unfortunately, had an opportunity to go, fortunately for him, unfortunately for us, had an opportunity to go be closer to his family in California. But Jeff had this really weird tick. When he got really excited, he would start telling his story and he would start doing this and rubbing his hands really hard. And a few, of, there was one, one Sunday, Josh Knight is preaching and he gets up there and he says, in the, point of his, in the main point of his text. And then one day we're standing at, uh, at a friend's house and a couple of us who had spent a lot of time with Josh realize every time we're getting excited, we're all going. <laughs> because you start to do the things, that, you start to look and act like the people that you hang around. And the same thing is true when we spend time with Jesus. The more we seek him, the more, we, the more we, we seek his love, the more we're gonna find ourselves pouring into other people. It becomes our natural reaction. And certainly there's gonna be times when we don't get it right. We're always gonna need him. But it's when we pour into him that people, and he pours out of us, that people will know that we are his disciples, that we're his followers. 
And I think what will happen is we'll start actively looking for those opportunities to love others. Maybe it comes in the form of, of taking someone to coffee. Maybe you're just aware and you see someone, you say, man, I, I see you're having a, a difficult time. Can I take you and buy you a cup of coffee and we can just spend time together? Just like when Jesus would do that with his disciples, where, they would, where he, would, might, he might preach a sermon, but then he would go off with his disciples privately and they would share a meal together and he would continue to teach them and laugh with them and share with them. Maybe it's looking for that opportunity to volunteer, not because it's the right thing to do or it's part of a checklist and you can mark it off, but because you see people who are in desperate need of care and that Jesus loves those people, that Jesus was drawn to the people who were poor and downtrodden, and so out of our love for Christ and his love pouring out through us, we seek to love those people. Or maybe... Maybe it's sitting down with someone close in your life and seeing the sin in their life. And out of your love for them, wanting to see them correct and come back to Jesus. So you lovingly and graciously go to them and offer them the support that they need just like Christ did when he sat down with his disciples as they argued over who was going to sit at his right hand in heaven. And when we do this, when we love like Jesus... When we love others and they know the intent of our hearts, then, then all people will know that we are his disciples. Will you bow your heads with me? Father God, as we look upon the cross and we see the sacrifice and the love that was shed or the love that was, was given there, God, we're reminded of how deep and wide that love for us, a broken and sinful people is. And God, we are grateful for the fact that, that it's not about what we do, but when, when you died on the cross, Lord, that you spared us. And that now, Lord, you, you walk side by side and you elevate us, Lord, and you change who we are. And God, I pray that as we go out into this community, Lord, that we would have love for each other, that we would have love for people, God. And that by that, this community would be impacted, that people here would know the depth of your love and know that we are your disciples, God. We say these things in your name. Amen.